Welcome to Golden Beer Talks. Good evening. Welcome. <laughs> it is lovely to see all of you. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to get started here. And we always begin and end with our gratitudes. We are deeply grateful to the Buffalo Rose for hosting us with such fine class. And I want to I want to specifically call out our bartender Brandon, as well as our soundboard over here, Dave Montoya. These guys really treat us right, and we are grateful. Thanks, guys. We are also grateful for to GoldenToday.com because they always promote our events and lots of other important stuff happening here in Golden. And if you aren't on their mailing list, GoldenToday.com, you can just sign up there and find out about happenings of this nature and others around Golden and some history and other interesting. Um, aspects of our community. We started this event almost six years ago now as a way to celebrate community and generate conviviality. It just happens that our entire Beer Talks team is in the room tonight, so I'm going to introduce everybody. And um, one of them is Karen Smith. She's in the back back here. Her husband, Don Sweetkind, right over here in a Beer Talk shirt. My husband, Bart Sheldrake, next to him. And the next person, the, the remaining member of our team, is also our beer ambassador. So he manages uh, to generate all kinds of excitement. But he um, works with our breweries to recruit the breweries and to set up beer tastings so that we can provide interesting beverages for your enjoyment. And um, his name is Dr. Jim Clausen, and he's going to come up here and talk about the beer and the cider that we're featuring tonight. Jim Clausen. I'll just hold this. Oh, no, I'll set this down. Okay. <laughs> All right. I've been more than one thing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Whitney. Uh, welcome, everybody. Um, so, <clears throat> as you know, we, um, we try to... to get both local breweries here and also we've started in the past year doing a regional um, search for breweries to kind of branch out um, to the area. Tonight um, our selected brews come from both near and far. Um, we worked with uh, Colorado Plus to bring you both um, a cider and a beer, one each from their two facilities. Uh, our first selection is from their Golden Cidery and Pub, which is just two blocks um, south that way on Arapahoe and 11th. Um, the cider is called Knackers, and it is a um, semi-sweet cider that's fermented with English ale yeast, and it comes in at 6% uh, uh, alcohol by volume. Um, <clears throat> it's not hopped, so most of the ciders aren't. Some are, but uh, um, it's... Um, it's a pretty good, uh, pretty good brew. It's not too sweet, not too dry, semi-sweet. It's a good one. Um, so the cidery itself opened in June of 2018. Uh, so they're coming up on their two-year anniversary. Um, one thing to keep an eye on in the spring is uh, they're introducing a new line of cider-infused cocktails. So. For example, they're going to have a Cider House Mule, and they're going to have a Cider Old Fashioned, and a Tequila Cider Sunrise. So all those sound pretty exciting. Um, sounds like in April they're going to start introducing those, and it sounded like maybe each week they would feature, feature one of those. So keep you coming back. Uh, the next selection we've got is uh, a flagship beer from their Wheat Ridge location on 38th Avenue. Um, it's not far from Wheat Ridge Cyclery. Some of you folks are familiar with the cyclery over there. Um, <clears throat> the Insert Coin is the name of the beer, and it's an American Pale Ale. Uh, it's got 5% uh, uh, ABV and 40 IBUs, so not, uh, not overly uh, hopped, but uh, pretty balanced beer, I thought. So um, It's got pretty broad appeal for most folks, and so we thought... Uh, we bring that one in to uh, pair with the uh, cider as well. Um, we'd like to thank the folks from Colorado Plus for helping us uh, selecting our brews for this evening. Um, and uh, now I'd like to introduce Jen Murdoch, who will be 
introducing tonight's uh, featured speaker. Jen? Thanks, Jim. Hello and welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Jen Murdoff. I'm a graduate student at the University of Denver. I study geological applications of geographic information science, but I live in Golden, just five minutes from here. Um, my boyfriend and I just moved back this summer after living in Idlewild, California for a few years where I taught high school STEM. Um, after one too many fire evacuations, though, we decided it was time to return home. And I'm happy to be here because that means I get to introduce, or I'm very honored to introduce my graduate advisor and one of the most inspirational professors throughout my college years at CU. Uh, that's Dr. Michael Kerwin. And he'll be speaking about Cape Town, South Africa, which is one of his favorite places to visit, as well as bring university students for experience-based learning, and he brings them there twice a year. So um, hopefully I'll be there in December with him. Uh, he's also going to be talking about the Day Zero event that made international news, and he'll provide insight into this event's relevance to Denver's future regarding uh, its water security and water supply. So some of you may have already heard Mike Kerwin speak if you went to the Claude Monet exhibit at the Denver Art Museum. Uh, and I have to look at the titles of these paintings, and I can't say them in French, so I looked them up in English. <laughs> but uh, he spoke about the white chalk cliffs along the Alabaster Coast in France, and uh, the rock needle off the coast of Normandy. So I was pretty excited to hear that. Um, Dr. Kerwin graduated from Colorado College in 1992 with a degree in geology. He received his master's in 94, and then his PhD in 2000 from CU Boulder in geological sciences. And then he was awarded a Mendenhall postdoctoral fellowship at the US Geological Survey in 2001. Uh, Mike is an associate professor of geography and the director of environmental science and geology programs at DU. He has won numerous teaching awards, including DU's Master Educator Award and the Award for Excellence in Teaching in Environmental Science. He is a phenomenal professor. And as a student and advisee of Mike's, I can attest to his passion for education and teaching. In 2012, I and 11 other students participated in what is called Field Quarter, um, which is where we travel uh, across Colorado, southwestern U.S., Nicaragua, and Mexico, and we get to conduct field research. Well, when we were with Mike, he fostered a sense of wonder, curiosity, and excitement for our environment. And it wasn't just through books and formal field work that he instilled knowledge about human-environment interactions. We learned through experiences, like camping at Echo Lake up on Mount Evans, traveling overgrown paths in the Chiricahua Mountains in search of endangered birds and pumas, visiting historical Native American sites, climbing ladders to cliff dwellings that few people know even exist. He introduced us to people who live alternative, alternative lifestyles, such as off the grid, and he made it possible for us to study venomous snakes, not just by looking at them through a cage, all right? I was holding this venomous snake about two feet from my face. And I learned that even though nature can be harmful, doesn't mean that it always seeks to actually harm. And we did all that in just two weeks. So uh, as a professor and advisor to at least 50 undergraduate students and multiple graduate students, I'm amazed how Mike simultaneously conducts groundbreaking and relevant research. He teaches field-based geography in classes, bringing students to South Africa and across the US yearly and contributes to the greater community through collaboration with cultural organizations like the Denver Art Museum. Um, his current research in South Africa, which he will discuss shortly, is of extreme importance for understanding human environment interactions, especially with regard to water resources. As the Front Range continues to grow with no signs of slowing down, rising temperatures, and increasingly sporadic precipitation, Many of us are wondering, what does Denver's future look like in, re in terms of water security? So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Dr. Michael Kerwin. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Um, thank you, Jen. I, I don't think we were supposed to talk about the snake. Um, it's really such an honor to be here tonight um, to see old friends uh, from Golden, where I lived for 14 years, 
to reconnect with Whitney and Karen and the others who organized this fantastic event and uh, just to share together some, some learning, some enjoyment together. So thank you everyone. Uh, tonight, I am here to tell you the story about water in what I think is the most beautiful and yet complicated city on the earth. And if you hear people over there snickering right now, that would be my family, and they're sick of me talking about Cape Town. So just dismiss them, just move past them, and let's talk about Cape Town. Cape Town is Africa's second largest city. It is a city that backs to a rugged, mountainous national park. It is a city that lies not just on one ocean, here, the frigid, cold South Atlantic Ocean, but on two. Here, the warm Indian Ocean, as seen from Cape Point. It is a city whose backyard ecosystem is so incredibly biodiverse that it contains 20% of all plant species in Africa and 3% of all plant species on Earth. And yet it is a city struggling with the legacy of separation and apartheid and trying to define its role in the global economy. And of course, a city that confronted drought and water supply like no other modern city on earth. For people like me, fortunately, who are not great with maps, Cape Town and South Africa are pretty easy to find. Cape Town is located in the southwest, whoops, sorry, sorry, sorry. Cape Town is located in the southwestern corner of South Africa, and of course South Africa is located at the southern tip of the African continent. At approximately twice the size of Texas, with a population of 56 million people, South Africa is culturally diverse. With 11 languages and nine native tribes, including the Xhosa people that are native to Cape Town. Megan, was that okay? All right, that's supposed to be a click, Xhosa. Cape Town is the capital of the Western Cape province. And if you look at this particular map, you can see the Western Cape province shown here in the lighter color and the city of Cape Town in red. For a visitor looking only at a map, you will notice that the city stretches, excuse me, that the city stretches and bends around Table Mountain National Park and down the Cape Peninsula. There's no way to experience this city, however, if you haven't visited it. Maybe the best way would be with this NASA digital elevation map, which shows the incredible diversity of topography in Cape Town and the mountainous city that it truly is. In this picture, if we take a look, Cape Town is located down here in the city's bowl, the central business district. This is the Cape Peninsula, which stretches 26 miles to the boundary between the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean at Cape Point. This flat area here is also part of the city. It's where the township are, called the Cape Flats region. And South Africa's world-class wine region stretches out to the east of the city in the town of Stellenbosch before you rise up incredibly steep mountains that are part of the Cape Fold Belt. The city is big, nearly four million residents, but 2.6 million live in townships, similar to the living conditions that I showed you before. Tourism is the driver of Cape Town. For many years, it has been ranked the number one tourist destination in the world. And get this, tourism in Cape Town makes up nearly 10% of the gross domestic product of South Africa. And everywhere you look in Cape Town, 
you will see that it is framed by Table Mountain. Whether you are in Table Bay, as my students are here in 2016, looking at humpback whales with Table Mountain in the background, or you're in the townships, here in the Longa Township, some 15 kilometers from Table Mountain, but a place that many residents will never get to. Or in Robben Island, where Nelson Mandela was jailed for 18 of his 27 years, allowing him to take up hobbies, including art. This is a photograph of an original Nelson Mandela painting called The Window, where you notice Table Mountain behind his jail cell. Cape Town enjoys a perfect Mediterranean climate. It is one of only five places on Earth where a northward flowing ocean current, rich with cold upwelling waters, creates a near consistent mild temperature year round. In the wintertime, Cape Town receives abundant rainfall thanks to the setup of this high pressure system just north and west of the city. And for those of you who studied meteorology, please notice that the circulation around the high is the opposite of what we would have up here in the northern hemisphere. The setup of this high pressure system in the winter allows storms that roll in from the west to be guided right into the city, one after another, almost on a weekly basis, heavy winter rainfall. In the summertime, the high pressure system moves to the south and the storms which continue to blow in from the west are guided south around the city and end up in other parts of South Africa. If you look at this pattern on a uh, graph which shows monthly precipitation in blue, and this is going of course from January to December, and then temperature in red, this is the graph of a perfect Mediterranean climate. Let's look at the temperature. Mild, ranging from about 16 degrees to 21 degrees C. And beginning in the winter, which down there is June, July, and August, abundant rainfall. The city planners in Cape Town who had to provide water to their community, they were smart and they recognized that every winter there should be abundant rainfall. They created a system of six water reservoirs. Sorry. They created a system of six water reservoirs located up to about 80 kilometers from the city that store rainfall. A little bit different from what we have here where we're storing snowfall. In Cape Town, they'd get just a trace of snowfall in those highest mountains, but really they're storing rainfall. These six reservoirs are linked together as you would expect, and they have delivery pipes that supply the city of Cape Town. Together, this system has worked beautifully in the past. And what I'm showing you here is a figure that looks at dam capacity. That's what they call it. And you can see the red line right here indicates the level of water availability in the combined six reservoirs. Notice from 2008, you have a pattern where you have summer Consumption of water followed by winter rainfall where the reservoirs get full again. Summer consumption, the reservoirs come down but it's replenished in the winter. What you are looking at here from 2008 to 2014 is a system that worked. No problems. Then came drought. From 2014 to 2017, this high pressure system in the winter positioned itself further south of where it should be. And as a result, the winter storms got channeled around Cape Town, much like the summer position is. The city caught on, of course, that the reservoirs, or dams as they call them, were getting lower. And early on, in June 2017, they started to warn tourists coming into the city 
This is a photo I took at the Cape Town airport, and it says, use less than 87 liters per person per day. Nothing else, just a warning. Something is up, okay? And something was up. If you look at the combined six dams and how they reacted to the drought, you can see again in 2014, the reservoir system was completely full. Summer consumption brought it down and plentiful winter rains did not arrive in 2015, 2016, or 2017, prompting the city to come up with the phrase, day zero, to warn of a time shown here in red when these reservoirs would be functionally empty with no backup, meaning no water to homes, agriculture, hotels, industry. The signs got a little more persuasive. This is a sign that I saw also in the Cape Town airport in December 2017, one month after coining the phrase day zero. And it says, together we can avoid day zero, the day our taps are turned off. Two months later, emergency water stations were set up around town in anticipation of day zero. It was a trial run much like universities are doing right now, preparing for going online with this uh, coronavirus. This was a trial run to see what would happen if day zero came. The idea was the way they would supply water and fulfill their constitutional responsibility is you would carry water bottles to one of 30 springs and you would fill up your bottles and carry them back out. And that's what was happening in these photos. Well, guess what happened a month later? Day zero was nixed. No more talk of day zero officially. And why? Because tourists were no longer coming to South Africa. And the city realized, wow, maybe there's a way to attack this drought without scaring away the tourists. March of 2018, no more day zero, but absolute day zero problems. This is a photo I took on June, in June of 2018, at the largest of the six dams. It's called the Thiwatiskloof Dam. And this photo shows it at 25% of capacity, still in a crisis mode. Eight days later, with students, including one who's here tonight, uh, Madeline, this is a photo that we took of people still queuing up at the springs, taking water the only water that was available to some people. So, no more talk about day zero, but a city in crisis. And a city that pivoted quickly and said, okay, we need solutions, here's four. Number one, everybody, conserve water. What you're looking at here is a bucket. And anyone who visited Cape Town during this event, whether you stayed at the fanciest hotel or some sort of a hostel, you had a bucket. And you were told when you get in the shower, fill the bucket while the water gets warm. Take your shower on off like a military shower. Use this water to flush the toilet. The signage also got a little bit more severe. Let's beat day zero with 50 liters or less per day. And very specific instructions, 10 liters for laundry, 10 liters for a shower. Pets even got one liter. At the five-star Vineyard Hotel, this is what you arrive to. This little rubber ducky placard that says, choose not to use. Due to Cape Town's critical water crisis, we're limiting our leaders. Please limit showers to 90 seconds at a hotel that might cost $400 a night. What about in the community? Megan McCarroll, who's here tonight, is leading our research team in asking the townships, what was it like to live through this in the townships, day zero? This is Megan right here, leading a community leading with friends and partners of ours in the Longa Township. And this is Thomas Levanchi, who's another collaborator in our efforts of conservation and trying to understand it. 
It wasn't only conservation for the city. They immediately put up some emergency desalinization plants. And I love this figure, because not only can you see this incredible intake pipe, pipe bringing in ocean water, but you also get another sense of the incredible beauty of the Indian Ocean and the Cape Fold Belt in the background. This is Cape Town. These emergency desalinization plants arrived from the Middle East in shipping containers. They were offloaded, they were turned on, they were put into the grid. Meanwhile, hotels recognized if our taps are turned off, our business is dead. And hotels, including this one here, the Cape Milner Hotel, where we bring students and stay twice a year, they drilled their own well, or borehole, as they call it. And this is the person who was responsible for that well, talking to Thomas, teaching us about what they were doing. Could you imagine being a business where you had to do this? Cape Town is also a city of contrast. And what you are looking at here is a 20,000 square foot single family home in one of the most expensive neighborhoods in Africa with Table Mountain in the background. What did this family do? They drilled their own well. Lastly, the city needs to access groundwater and they know it. This headline from late 2017 says billions of cubic meters of water are in the Table Mountain Aquifer Group and our team in 2019 published an article proposing a system for sustainable groundwater withdrawals. What that means is you pump groundwater knowing that it will be replenished or able to be injected, re-injected by humans so that you can continue to use this groundwater. Okay, some great ideas, four plans at the time. It's 2020, it's not 2018. What the heck happened? Well, the two-year perspective allows me to say that they got lucky. What you're looking at now is familiar to you. Here's the full capacity of the big six dams with our typical pattern of rainfall replenishment. Here's the day zero drought. This is actual day zero, which never arrived. Why did they get through this? The rains came back. They got lucky. But they know it's not over. The challenges for South Africa are the same that every city faces climate changes, but for them also increasing sea surface temperatures, which have been known to push our friend, this high pressure system to the south, guiding storms away from Cape Town, potentially eliminating this Mediterranean system. This is not a bad question. Could the Denver area have a day zero? And all of you in the room who lived here in Golden or Denver at the time, you saw the news stations covering this, asking experts if Denver could have a day zero. It's not a bad question. Most say, no way. Denver is an incredibly water-rich city that gathers its water supply from abundant mountain snowfall. And those of us who love the mountains, we know that this has been a good snowpack year. In fact, it's about 111% of normal. Beyond that, Denver collects mountain snowfall from nine counties, and they're currently trying to expand even further west towards Mesa County. Whether they collect water on the western slope or the eastern slope, it's no problem to them because they have this network of 12 water tunnels, these massive tunnels that create what's called a transbasin diversion, pulling water under the mountains into the city and metro area of Denver. And guess what? If it's a bad snow year and there's a whole bunch of drought, there's this massive aquifer below, part of the Denver Basin Aquifer with untapped groundwater, at least as it pertains to the city of Denver. Now, some of the suburbs are already using this. So, could Denver experience a day zero? A lot of people say no. 
Others say, not so fast. I don't know if you guys know this, but in 2058, our fair city just down the road turns 200 with a projected metro area population double what it is today. I give this talk sometimes in South Africa and I have to explain this dynamic of population growth. There's no need. We get it. We live here. We see the people coming. Statistically, on average, over the last 16 years, 155 people have arrived in the Denver metro area every day. And that is projected to continue. And when they arrive, they are going to find a birthday celebration for Denver with warmer summer temperatures. This is a map showing global climate model projections for the Denver area. And the idea is that by mid-century, we can expect an additional four degrees Fahrenheit warming in the summer. In terms of precipitation, it's not that simple. The climate models do not allow us to know what might happen in the future in terms of precipitation. Throughout Colorado, you can see that there's statistically insignificant changes. But thanks to researchers like Becky Bryce up here, who is doing cutting-edge, state-of-the-art research on mountain snowfall. We know that Colorado will face diminished mountain snowpack, an earlier runoff, mid-April instead of mid-May, and the need for extensive pumping from this Denver aquifer system. So we know things are changing. But as a geologist, we look to the past for perspective. We don't just use models that simulate forward and say, warning, this could be bad. We go back in the past and we say, what was drought like a long time ago? This lesson begins by looking at the available data in Colorado in terms of annual precipitation. And what you're seeing here is about a 124-year record of precipitation in our state with an average being about 18 inches a year. So if you study this figure carefully, you'll see fluctuations around a mean. There are times when it is below average precipitation, and sometimes these time periods have a name, like the Dust Bowl. Other droughts that we can see in this figure happen to be the decade of the 1950s. We can also see drought in terms of single years. The year 2002, maybe a lot of you remember coming through that single-year drought. But again, as geologists, we don't look at a 124-year record and say a lot about it. We need much more perspective on this. And this is where we go to people like Becky again, the tree ring researchers. Now, don't panic. I will walk you through this figure. There's a lot on here, but stay with me, okay? This is an incredibly important figure that gives us not a 124-year look at drought, but an 800-year snapshot of drought from tree ring records. It's called the Southwest Drought Index, and don't worry about it. Negative numbers mean dry, positive numbers mean wet. And what we see if we isolate the three largest droughts of the last 800 years is we begin with an old friend, the drought of the 1950s, centered on the year 1956, you can see that the spatial distribution of this decade-long drought was enormous. Two-thirds of the United States was impacted. Come back further in time with me, and instead of a decade-long drought, now we're looking at a 22-year drought, also of equal spatial significance. Further back in time, the 26-year drought centered on the year 1280 AD didn't do too much to the rest of the United States, but it eliminated a people that we now call the Anasazi. And I use that word eliminated completely wrong. It didn't do that to them, but they moved on. They had to find places where there was water. Okay, an 800-year record is starting to do good things for us geologists but we want to go back further in time. I take you to the Colorado River. The three droughts that I just mentioned to you, this is another tree ring record from the Colorado River. 
the drought of the 1950s, the drought of the 1500s, the drought of the 1200s, and then this thing. I'll let you read it. I'm not 56 years old and I couldn't imagine living my entire life in drought. But that's what this record says, is that in the 12th century, the Colorado River experienced a drought that lasted five decades. We go back further in time, one final record, this time on the Rio Grande headwaters. Our old friends are highlighted, the 50s, the 1500s, the 1200s, the 12th century, and this one here, the second century drought with a duration of 60 years. What do these records tell us? They say that drought, single year drought, decadal drought, what we call mega drought, a drought that is longer than two decades, are natural parts of the climate system here in the Denver area. If we were to map the two largest droughts, the second century drought and the 12th century drought, onto a map of the United States, this is what they would look like. With peak dry conditions of about 25 years each, you can see that the second century drought barely touches Denver, if at all. Might not have even impacted Denver. But the medieval drought, the 12th century drought, covered again two-thirds of the United States, a pattern that shows itself again and again. So what do people like me do? We blend climate model predictions that predict out into the future with what we know from the past, and we provide this to cities. This is a map. It is fake, okay? What I am showing is a possibility for the future. This is a map based on the 12th century mega drought in terms of the spatial coverage and the duration and magnitude and severity of this drought is based on climate model simulations. The experts believe that there is a one in three chance that we will experience a mega drought like this before Denver turns 200, which is the reason I pick this fictitious time period, okay? That's not real. It's just saying, what if? Happy birthday, Denver. How's it going? How's your day zero? We still don't know. The lessons of day zero, and I love this, this picture. I don't know if you can see it. This is the Cape Town Airport. You're arriving into one of the great cities on Earth. Yes, they're snickering, okay? Other people are coming. It's a popular tourist destination. And the city has pictures of Nelson Mandela, welcome to the mother city. But it also says, our city life is on the line. And it has these leaders. And it talks about how every leader counts. The story of day zero is multifaceted. The one that inspires myself and Megan, who's doing her PhD on this, is the extraordinary water conservation that humans did. They were told to conserve, they were told to shower in a bucket, and they did it. They did it. The other story is a little more serious. The lesson of day zero says that we, not only in Cape Town, but in Denver, need immediate and long-term planning because drought and warming are intensifying and day zeros are coming back. Lastly and sadly, history tells us that it will probably take another record drought to actually get anybody in the Denver area doing bullet point two. And if you lived through the drought of 2002, you know what I'm talking about. The moment we got our water, our lawns turned green, we sort of forgot about it. Thank you, everyone, for inviting me. I always love to uh, end on this figure uh, for a couple reasons. It, it shows a lot of my friends 
Um, I love South Africa. I get to go so often with my co-instructor Thomas with incredible students like Megan and Madeline who are here. And then we get to meet locals who over time become our friends. Thank you for letting me share this story. Thank you. Okay, so Whitney has gone to position by the microphone. Uh, we'd really appreciate if you have a question to come over to the microphone so that everybody in the room can hear you. And uh, Mike, I'm going to turn it over to you and we'll just go till we're about done. Uh, okay. <laughs> are, are there any questions? <laughs> I have one. I have one. This, this question was actually provided to us, so I'm going to go ahead and read oh. it on behalf of one of our um, guests. Okay. But I also wanted to mention that one of the reasons we like to ask the questions this way is that we do podcast and, you know, record and podcast. So it'll be on our website, and it um, can be shared around. And if there are other talks you've missed that you might be interested in kind of checking out, those are always posted afterward on our website. So it's nice to have those questions recorded as well. So that's why we are grateful if you're able to come down. So this question was handed in. Okay. Brace yourself. How does the drought planning relate to the new Colorado water plan that was developed under Governor Hickenlooper? Question mark, exclamation point. <laughs> yeah. Um, so a, a water plan is going to be much, much, much more broad than just accounting for drought. Um, drought is a, a big part of... Uh, of water planning, but what we're learning, and specifically Megan and, and I and, and Thomas and the work that we're doing in South Africa, we're trying to learn if this day zero drought can actually turn into policy, not just in 2018 or 2019, but in 2025. And so far the record of that in the United States is not spectacular. Um, in California, the, the four-year drought that all of us were reading about uh, about eight or nine years ago as the single worst on record, almost the moment that ended, you stop hearing about it in terms of policy and you shift right back into all sorts of different agendas. Um, I would say with that particular water plan that put forth by Hickenlooper, there are good ideas, there are ideas that have to be in there, but if I had to rank it, I would say drought is about number five on the list. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, Mike, how do you replenish aquifers? Uh, I'm asking because we're very familiar with how to suck them dry, see the Ogallala. Yep, yep. Uh, fantastic question, and I want to credit my colleague James Adamson on this. We actually just submitted a paper last week to a, a groundwater journal where we went into the, the details of aquifer replenishment, and uh, I will try to not be too technical. In the Cape Town area, there are two types of aquifers. Uh, the first is part of the Table Mountain Group, and this is a sandstone quartzite aquifer with trillions and trillions of gallons of water, some of it highly recharged, some of it with a recharge rate of about 60% per year. So you would never touch a system like that. If it can recharge at 60%, you're getting pristine, clean groundwater, and you might extract from it for two or three years in a row, and then you'd leave it alone, let it cap itself to 100%. There's another aquifer system in the area, which is called the Cape Flats Aquifer System, and it is unconsolidated sand, if you could imagine that. And it sits very shallowly, shallowly into the earth, about three to four meters down. And so if you pump water out of that aquifer, it's already a tiny, tiny bit saline. And it's also sitting underneath this township of 1.5 million people. So there's all sorts of uh, uh, biological contaminants. There's petroleum contaminants. And so you are going through a phase of deep, deep cleaning of that water. And so you can recharge it with almost anything. Not seawater, but you can go through a partial desalinization process, which you wouldn't do right now, and you can recharge it that way. You can collect storm water, and that's our proposal, and, and recharge it that way. So it's a brilliant question, and it is different for each and every system. Yep. 
Thank you for a really informative talk. Thank you. Um, I am impressed especially that the personal discipline that they are able to uh, put through a very diverse society as they approach day zero was effective. I am much more concerned about the American psyche, and I say that based on a little bit of, of comparable resource limitation and bad consequences things in that American population doesn't hardly do anything to cut their rampant energy use even in the face of good science that makes it very clear that the climate situation is going to heck maybe spelled differently. Yeah. I, I, uh, I think your point is well made. I um, agree with it. I, I am hopeful um, perhaps that lessons from Cape Town can be spread to the United States, uh, but so far we have not seen that. Um, I want to show you a picture here, um, and I might have Megan comment on this as well. There are two points to your comment that I want to bring up. Um, one is that everybody in Cape Town started to conserve water. Um, some of our dear friends who, um, to, to be dead honest with you, they actually own a home where they have a well. And they chose not to use the well. They chose to do the restrictions, the bucket showers. These are people of means. And they did it because it's what the community needed. There were uh, Facebook groups that popped up challenging people. How are you conserving today? This, this type of thing. But this is where Megan um, uh, could, could help me with uh, this gentleman's name, Megan, um, the one with the dreadlocks over here. Do you remember? I don't. Um, anyway, one of, our, one of our collaborators is this wonderful young man who, uh, frankly, lives in poverty in a township. He's incredibly bright. He's eager to work with us because he's interested in research. And our research is looking at how day zero restrictions impacted people in the townships. At this community meeting that Megan was at, we asked these people to share what it was like for them to get down to 50 liters a day. And by the way, in the United States, even on our best days, we use 200 to 300 liters per day. This young man, stood up and with a great deal of respect looked at Megan and I and says, said, do you realize I haven't had a single day in my life where I used more than 50 liters? And that's because the reality of his water supply is this that I'm going to show you. Sorry. I'm trying to go back to the picture of this. That's his reality. He's never had a shower. So I agree um, what a Cape Tonian would say. If a Cape Tonian was here with me, is, is she or he would say, if we can do it, anyone can do it. Yep. I have a question. Uh, because of the nature of the growth of Denver and the Denver suburbs, uh, the Denver area, uh, and having lived out on the Great Plains for a while. Mm -hmm. So if Denver has the um, reservoir, the dam uh, it, from, the, from the snow for water, mm -hmm. but where we're really growing is out in those uh, uh, high desert yep. areas yep. where there are not those dams and the aquifers are really being depleted, yes. and what do we do? Y you ask a very wise question. Um, you are talking specifically about the growth in Douglas County and South, where currently they still use 87% of their water comes from the Arapaho Aquifer right. deep down. Um, as you well know, as others in the room know, um, in order to get a housing development approved back in the early 2000s, you had to show 100 years worth of water supply. Um, those data were loose and free-willy, and depending on who on city council you could get to show them 100 years of water supply, you, you could get your de development put online. 
The, the current best estimates are that a lot of the aquifers in Douglas County specifically have about 30 years left. And the difference between that aquifer system and what we see in Cape Town is this is an aquifer system that is recharged at a rate of two and a half centimeters per year, so that much. And the withdrawal rate four years ago was six and a half feet. So this is called groundwater mining. So they're pulling this water out of the ground. They're trying to, to bank their future on convincing farmers to sell them their groundwater. But it's a year-to-year, five-year-at-best thing where they've got the people, they've got the, the economic base, they've got the water for now. But we face a terrible emergency crisis yeah. uh, in our suburbs, truly, unless they can find more water. Uh, thank you again for the excellent talk. Thank you. Uh, the future of Denver looks dire from your, <laughs> from your analysis, and uh, that's part of the point. But it strikes me that we're in better shape than a lot of the big cities in the southwest, such as Tucson and Phoenix. And a lot of your data from uh, dendrochronology, et cetera, is from the southwest, isn't it? Is that true? It, it is. Yes. Yes, and absolutely. So. so in really bad shape? <laughs> you, uh, again, an absolutely brilliant comment. You, you've got it. Um, in terms of not just the United States, but globally, Denver may be the most water-rich city on the planet. It truly might be. If you think of a city that has senior water rights to incredible mountain snowpack with 4,000-meter peaks all around... Uh, the ability to transport that water, the ability to tap into groundwater, and future technology coming. Um, Denver is absolutely cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, and lucky. Um, I, I worked at the University of Western Australia in Perth for a semester, and I was studying water as it relates to the wine industry. And in Perth, there's no mountain snowpack at all. There's also no rainfall. So Perth, Western Australia is dealing with essentially desalinization and really shallow aquifers. Denver's better off. Your, your point of the southwestern cities, not even comparable to Denver. Not even comparable. And one other comment, when we look at groundwater for the long term, uh, there are glaring examples in which, you, I think you mentioned the term groundwater mining. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's happened on Long Island. It's happened yep. on the Ogallala. It must be happening in the greater Palm Springs area because mm -hmm. it's dry as heck. Yep. And they're drawing water out. So, <laughs> so uh, if we look at a geologic scale, even the groundwater here in, in the Denver Basin is a transient situation. I mean, depending upon the time scale you look at. Again, and uh, I don't know if you heard that, that comment, another fantastic comment, talking about groundwater mining in the Ogallala system, in the Palm Springs system, and in Denver. And can I spin it this way and give credit to Denver for recognizing that and not using that supply at all? None. Um, it doesn't mean they won't in the future, um, and it doesn't mean they're doing this because they're a good city, they're doing this because they have senior water rights to plentiful mountain snowfall right now. But what we propose in Cape Town, uh, this sustainable groundwater model, um, is absolutely dissimilar to anything that we would see in the United States where these aquifers are buried uh, hundreds, sometimes thousands of meters below ground and were replenished by fossil water um, from back in the Pleistocene when glaciers were melting. It's a different system in Africa. Terrific points. One more. <clears throat> so question with respect to Cape Town moving forward now that the rains have come back and the grass is green. Mm -hmm. Have they implemented a plan to continue the cultural shift that they were so successful in doing initially? And it's two-part, and do you see, it hasn't been that long, 
but do you see any kind of lasting cultural shift mm. um, moving forward? Uh, such good questions. If you didn't hear it, the first one is Cape Town moving forward. <coughs> Are there plans to implement the, the cultural shift? Uh, and say the second one again. Uh, the second one was even better. Uh, second question is, w what if any, I guess, cultural, remaining cultural shifts have you seen uh, ongoing after the first drought? Okay, um, thank you. So, uh, great questions, and um, the city, th I will give Cape Town credit in that the city is being smart, and they're looking at global water crises in the past, and they're realizing that humans cannot be counted on for conservation once the rains come back. So the city is planning efforts to supplement the rainfall with groundwater, with desalinization. They're more than likely going to go into a recycled water phenomenon, and that's where they take wastewater and they put it right back into the water treatment plant and then out to the, to the houses and everything. However, the, the, and this is Megan's research, uh, the people of Cape Town have said that they will never go back. They will never go back to taking long baths, to watering their gardens freely. They have been um, scared or moved by this. And to me, the most interesting answer to your question comes from when Megan and I were interviewing uh, hotel owners in Cape Town. So imagine being the owner of a five-star hotel in the most desirable tourist destination on earth. And we're sitting down with this person's water conservation manager. And that water conservation manager is telling us over three years about five complaints. You're talking tens of thousands of human beings spending big, big money to stay at the hotel. And there were five complaints saying, how come I can't take my bath? What this person conveyed is when the challenge is thrown out there, that for the greater good of the community, we're all trying to conserve water and we want you to do that on your once in a lifetime vacation. And guess what people said? Cool, I'm in stunned us. It floored us. I won't speak for you. It floored me. I went into that day saying, okay, Megan, we're going to talk to him and we're going to hear that it was a huge problem for tourists. Nope. It was a challenge. And we're learning that they took that water education home. So the city is not counting on it, but I don't think it'll ever change there. Whitney, you visited. Where's what is your answer to that question? You visited. Yeah, we were there um, in 2018. And so, um, you know, when you go to your Airbnb, there are signs everywhere in the Airbnb telling you, you know, how much volume of water, because it's not something we think about as Americans. And so if you were going to um, wash your hands, it tells you how much how of your allowance that's going to be. And it would e there were even signs in ours about when you go to the restaurant, you know, this is what you can kind of calculate is the water involved in preparing your foods. And um, so it actually became a really fun game. And, um, and I felt the same way about it, that like we're bought into this thing, man. If we're coming here and we're doing this, we're going to spend what we can spend in terms of dollars because they have had attrition in the tourism. And then we're going to conserve everything we can. And um, yep. yeah, I think it, it marked us as well. Yep. Quick one. Where does Golden get its water? So Golden is a little bit different. Golden is a much, much, much smaller system. Um, it's, it's actually a very nice system, mostly Clear Creek. But once you get the water into the system, it functions exactly the same as the Denver system in terms of the way that the water treatment works. And Golden's very, very lucky in that they're dependent right now just on surface water. Um, so Golden, uh, Golden and Boulder sort of view themselves as these separate sort of perfect systems. And um, I don't know that perfect is the, the appropriate way to describe it, um, but it's a very small, simple system. Um, I could tell you stories about a fight between Golden and Thornton uh, <laughs> back in 2002, but we won't get into water calls, but there were... There were water calls on some of the tributaries here to the South Platte where uh, Thornton was being warned that overnight their water would be turned off entirely and that warning came from Golden. And then Denver came in and told Golden that 
you realize we're above you. <laughs> Please stop fighting. <laughs> so this is a question about human-caused climate change, and obviously uh, some people disagree about that. In your discussion about the, the U.S. Southwest, you weren't really talking much about that controversy, and you're looking at data from 100 AD when nobody was driving around in uh, gasoline-powered cars, and the 12th century, and, and even the 1950s. So, so the question is, to what extent does your prediction of a dire uh, future for Denver sometime soon depend on conclusions about human-caused climate change or just natural cycles in our, um, our climate? That's my brother. <laughs> and he asks a great question. And um, I'm glad you brought that up, Greg, because what, what we do is we look at precipitation and drought well before humans were modifying the earth in any way. So when we are reconstructing past drought, as you point out, um, in the second century, in the 12th century, these are droughts that took place outside of the influences of human beings. And as a paleoclimatologist, we use that to establish a baseline. And that baseline says that in terms of drought, these droughts happen before human beings. And then come about 1860, when the humans arrived and started putting carbon and methane and other things into the atmosphere, creating a climate forcing we see that these drought patterns continue, but that drought is no longer as we would see it in the past. It has uh, a layering to it, and that layering is twofold. It's warmer temperatures, uh, the result of higher evapotranspiration, and it's higher variability. So it's higher rainfall, higher drought. That's what we see post-1865 with this uh, human-induced climate change. So when we model forward, what we are doing is saying, would it be surprising in this area to have history repeat itself? And the answer is no, especially if you can say that history has given this type of large drought to us multiple times in the past. But then you look at the scenario of a drought arriving now when temperatures are already two to three degrees Fahrenheit warmer in the summer, your soils are drier, what would that do? And that's what they call a, a global warming style drought. And the modeling and the paleoclimate records show that the, there was a drought in 2012, the last one that covered all of the country like I showed you. And they call that a pan-continental global warming style drought and they label it as the hottest drought in the history, in the geologic history of the Southwest. But the drought itself looked exactly like past mega droughts. So I don't know if that gets at exactly what you're saying, but it's a way to sort of blend the reality of what's happening to the climate system with this inevitable history, which is pushing towards us, no matter what. Maybe one last one. Fantastic, yeah. Um, so as, as one who uh, works in the space industry and is charged with trying to keep astronauts alive on long duration space missions and uh, can't take a lot of uh, mass with us on that, we recycle a lot of our uh, constituents and we're up to mm, upwards of 85% recycling of the water in the system, uh, including urine and, and um, condensate and everything else. So. It's always fun to talk to third graders about recycling your yeah. urine, but yeah. um, <clears throat> I'm just wondering about uh, the recycling uh, capabilities and, and perhaps Cape Town implementing some of that and whether or not uh, we're seeing that uh, here in this country at all. A, a great question. I don't know that I can answer it uh, from the perspective of recycling beyond the, the way that cities do it now. And uh, I have other family here, actually. Uh, Julie and Catalina are here with me, and we lived in Australia together in 2009. And at that time, when we were living in Western Australia, the city passed this notion of water recycling. And 
what they did is they, they take the, the wastewater, they treat it, and then they put it right into the water treatment plant and then that gets distributed. San Diego just took this on about four years ago. Now, I think what your question is getting at is how do human beings respond maybe to, to this level of technology? Um, or maybe your question is what other deeper technologies we could do? Why don't you clarify? It may be more of um, economic. I mean, we yep. we have the imperative to to do it no matter what because mass is king when you're talking about sending things halfway across the solar system. Um, but when you're talking about trying to institute that type of recycling, you know, uh, in in a normal um, city. Uh, infrastructure, whether or not that's an economical, something that you would even consider doing. Yep. What kind of levels are we talking about that we can get to? I follow you, and let me answer it this way. Um, I think not only is it part of the solution, but it's inevitable. Um, and here's something that I found to be maybe a little bit discouraging. Um, so in Australia, when we lived there, people across the board said, great, we're in, do this. Do this water recycling. But then, guess what people did at home for their drinking water? Plastic bottles of water, across the board, ubiquitously. And so what does that do? Is that actually a positive? Is the, is the plastic uh, production costs and the plastic waste actually worth it to go through this recycling of water? Um, San Diego, I don't know if anybody read this, this is actually quite inspiring and I'll, I'll cheers it with my beer, but the Stone Brewing Company in San Diego, right after they did this, this, this wastewater recycling, people were kind of freaked out in San Diego and moving to the plastic water and the Stone Brewing Company released a beer that had this provocative name that was that was promoting that this is recycled beer, you know, made from wastewater. And I give them credit. Say it again. Yeah, the yellow porter. Maybe there was a brown one. <laughs> well, so. I, 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 the amusing thing is yeah. whether or not you're recycling your own back into consumable products. Yep. Uh, most people live downstream of somebody who's already recycled that. So we're essentially doing that anyways. We're so. essentially doing it. And maybe with that great final question, we tie it into the previous thought that really Denver's in good shape. Like really Denver's in good shape comparatively. Thank you very much, Mike. Your own Golden Beer Talks t-shirt. Yeah. And uh, special thanks to the Kerwin family and friends that are here. I think there's quite a few. All right, everybody. Um, it was another great evening, Golden Beer Talks, and we'll see you in April. Thank you very much. <laughs>